Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. arrived at our next installment in our Make Disciples podcast series, where we are covering what a disciple is, who we are in Christ, and what are the characteristics of a follower of our King. Today, we are discussing the characteristic that disciples encounter people. As usual, we have Michael, our resident physiologist. I'm Andrew Johnson, associate pastor at Neartown Church in Houston, Texas, and we are so honored to have Michael Frost with us all the way from Australia. Mike is the co-author of numerous books, such as The Shaping of Things to Come and Read Jesus with Alan Hirsch, and the recent author of Mission is the Shape of Water. He is also the founding director at the Tinsley Institute at Moreland College in Sydney. Mike, welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be here. We are so glad that you are here. Um, this is not your first time on the Ephesiology Podcast, but for those who are joining us for this Make Disciples uh, podcast series, they may be unfamiliar with you. So what are uh, maybe two or three important facts about Mike Frost so that we can get to know you beyond the the man that I just described? Oh, two or three important facts. Um, well, let me think. Uh, I'm a recent grandfather. I have a three-year-old grandson and another grandchild on the way. And uh, I remember old timers always used to say to me, oh, being a grandfather is just the best thing. You know, I remember one old guy saying to me, I think I think I might love my grandchildren more than I remember loving my grandchildren. <laughs> and I used to just take it like, okay, fair enough. You know, you're an old guy, I guess. I'll take it for what that's worth. But now that I've become one, it is true. Like you become sort of brain damaged <laughs> by by grandparently love. I don't even know how to explain it or why I love this little kid as much as I do. It's uh, it's it's quite bizarre, but also incredibly adorable. So, and three year, three years old is a very cute age. So I'm um, mm -hmm. I'm loving being a grandfather. What else? So happy that he's doing better now. We have been praying for him. Yeah, thank uh, you. Uh, I didn't know whether to mention that on a podcast here, but yeah, he has been very unwell in recent days. He had scarlet fever and pneumonia, mm. which has been uh, mm. very bad, but uh, right. he's sort of recovering slowly. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that, Michael. Yeah. Great to hear about that. Great to hear that he is on the mend. Uh, maybe what's another thing uh, that we can get to know the man behind the wonderful glasses? as we hear from you. Um, another thing that you could know about me, I, well, you mentioned I live in Sydney, so, you know, I love rugby and and cricket. Um, I hate New Zealand rugby players <laughs> with a passion. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> what else could you know about me? Um, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I collect vinyl. I love kayaking. Um, okay. You know, all that kind of jazz. Okay. Well, when we are off, Mike, I look forward to talking to you more about your vinyl collection. Uh, but I don't want to bore our listeners here because that would be a podcast. Um, and I don't want to waste your time like that. Uh, Michael, we have Mike on to discuss how disciples uh, encounter people. Disciples encounter people. What comes to mind for you um, in regards to why is this important? 
Well, I, I mean, this is, I think, incredibly important, not any more important than the other 11 characteristics that we're talking about in terms of what a disciple is. But, uh, but certainly a disciple encounters people. We, we're to be engaging with people. And I'm so glad that you're joining us, Mike, on this topic, because it, you, as Andrew introduced you, you uh, are director of the Tinsley Center and you focus a lot of attention on church planting and on engaging uh, contemporary culture and your new book. And I hope that you'll give a, a couple of tidbits about that book, Mission in the Shape of Water. Um, it's just an important volume for us to really think about. What does it mean? Even historically, how have people encountered other people? How have Christians encountered other people? But what does that mean for us today? So we'd love to get your thoughts. Yeah, I think um, I think it, it's hard to go through life and not encounter people if you just take that term kind of really broadly. Everyone encounters people in the workplace, in their neighbourhood, you know, sports and hobbies and interests and all that kind of stuff. So telling people to encounter people might seem a bit redundant since that's what life is like, unless you have real issues with kind of socialising and the like. But 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 what you know your course is about what your book is about is actually much more than that it's about actually crossing boundaries to encounter people and to be other centered or other oriented in a way which engages with people both those who you have natural proximity to like i mentioned before in your neighborhood or your workplace but also to kind of extend beyond oneself into the life of others who might be left out, ignored, overlooked, marginalised, uh, those who are you know, victims of systems of, of poverty or brokenness. Or, so, so to be an externally oriented person means to encounter people. And we we have that kind of example for us in, in the ministry of Jesus who, and in subtle ways actually, because I mean, of course Jesus is you know, the Messiah. He is the, the son of David. He's the sent one. He's, you know, Isaiah anticipated him. Israel hopes for him. They don't realize they're going to get him, but there is an expectation of, of, of this great Israelite, this son of David who will come and who will usher in the kingdom to Israel. Uh, and a lot of the thinking there was within the bounds, the geographic boundaries of the nation of Israel. It's he's our Messiah and it's our God and it will be our kingdom in a way. But what you see in Jesus' ministry are hints of the really radical way in which this kingdom was meant to come, not mm -hmm. only you know, with a sword, not with a sword, but with a, a man of peace, and not just to within the geographic boundaries of Israel, but to the whole nation. And of course, we're coming up to Christmas. You get hints of that in the in the birth narrative with with Magi coming from the east. You get that in Jesus' very first, uh, some people call it a sermon, where he reads from the scroll of Isaiah in the um, the synagogue in Nazareth and declares Isaiah's uh, uh, prophecies about, you know, the, the, the anointing of the Lord being upon him and preaching good news to the poor and freedom to the captives and the, the year of the Lord's favour. But a lot of people think, and then everyone got really cross with him, but people right. only got cross with him when he then said, I'm not going to perform any miracles to you because I don't think that you're the least bit receptive to them, and then tells two stories from their own history about Elijah being sent to a widow at Zarephath, which is in Lebanon, and about Elisha healing a Syrian general called uh, Naaman. And, and then makes this kind of really radical statement. He says, um, weren't there any lepers in Israel that Elisha 
could have healed? Or were there no widows in Israel that Elijah could have fed? Um, and he, he, the inference here is like the only people who receive this kind of kingdom, this kind of new way of being human, this new experience of the, the presence of God are those who hunger for it and those who accept the sent one, the king. And if that happens to be a widow in Lebanon or a Syrian general, or if that happens to be somebody in Ephesus or Alexandria or Rome, the kingdom will come. It's not going to be geographically bounded. And for that, they try to throw him off a cliff, as you right. know. I mean, that is for them. It's not you declaring that you are the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. They don't overreact to that. In fact, they watch him waiting for him to perform a miracle to prove it. What really gets them riled is that you dare to suggest that that this kingdom is going to breach the boundaries of Israel and go to all peoples who might yearn for it. And then you get another hint of it in the beginning or the middle of John's gospel in John chapter 10, where Jesus refers to himself as a good shepherd. The inference being that the the, uh, the leaders of Israel are bad shepherds, and then he says, "Our oh, mm. shepherds, you know, will I will call their name; they'll know my voice. I will lead them to freedom, to life, and life to the full." And then he says, um, "And I will call sheep from other flocks who will gather and join this kind of multi-ethnic kind of flock of followers." And it's at that point that right. the Pharisees say, "This man is deranged. He's." He's mentally unwell. Like that's the living end as far mm-hmm. as they're concerned. And so I think that, you know, when we look at Jesus encountering people, we have to remind ourselves that we too can find ourselves kind of creating systems of religious community mm-hmm. in which we feel, well, the kingdom has come to us and we we gather within not necessarily geographic bounds, but within kind of relational boundaries that, you know, the kingdom is ours we are the people of God. We mm-hmm. are the church of Jesus. Um, and yet, I think if we look at the example of Jesus again and again, what you find is the kingdom just bursts mm. beyond that and is always should be calling us to extend ourselves from beyond just the kind of the limitations of, in our case, the church, or in Israel's case, the geographic uh, nation of Israel, to recognize that the kingdom and that God wants us to encounter all peoples everywhere, even those who might seem far from from him. I love that idea. And it's getting to what we often talk about as us making the missional move to people. That that's what Jesus that's what God does in Jesus. He makes that move to people rather than asking people to make the move to us. And that yeah. and we've gotten that backwards, it seems like um over the past couple well maybe over the past century where we've been asking people to make the missional move to us and conform to our systems as you put it uh, rather than us really uh, thinking about what does it mean for us to to genuinely encounter people where they are and make that missional move so that uh, we're in the proximity of them but also that uh, we're engaging with them in meaningful ways. Yeah, and in fact, even though there are hints of this, I mean, I'll I'll admit that this is not a major theme in Jesus' ministry. You have to really look for these hints of his view that once the kingdom is kind of initiated and birthed through his ministry in Israel, it will extend beyond. You have to look for those but they're definitely there all the way through the Gospels. And yet his very first followers, you know, at the beginning of the book of Acts, 
are all ensconced in Jerusalem. There's no right. thinking, let's go. Like, you know, we're going to go to the widow in Zarephath or to, to Naaman in Syria. We're going beyond the bounds of they're still hunkered down. And as you'll know, it takes kind of a persecution to kind of expel them from Jerusalem. And then, well, blow me down if we don't discover actually the kingdom is unfolding in people's lives like beyond the boundaries of Israel. And then the Christian movement gets going. And really the early church, of course, really lives this out. It's one of the most peculiar and appealing things about the earliest church was that they were fashioning multi-ethnic communities of Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, men and women, um, the likes of which, you know, had not been seen anywhere else in the ancient world at that point. I mean, it literally turned the empire upside down because they were fashioning a new kind of redeemed society that was so peculiar. It was either like, you know, shocking to people or it was in intoxicatingly appealing. Mm. Talk, talk about that, because this is this is getting to one of the points in your book. Uh, as you're tracing kind of the historical unfolding of mission and the many different shapes that it's taking over the history of the church. Uh, because, uh, I mean, you make a couple references in uh, your first chapter to the letter to Dognatus, and uh, just such a powerful letter and testimony to, yes, the, the peculiarity of Christians, but how culturally connected they still were in spite of the fact that they believed very differently than uh, those in the Roman Empire. Yeah, well, I think one of the, the really remarkable things about the early church was in some respects, you could say that they looked quite similar to the kind of guild meetings that most people in in, in um, the empire would have encountered. Like a, a guild meeting was, you know, big long tables drawn together and a meal uh, around which people sat, and then a religious ritual that was a part of the meal, and then the meal would continue beyond that ritual. But guild meetings were for professionals. You know, you had mm -hmm. the the, the um, silversmiths guild or the the seller of purple cloth guild, uh, merchants guilds and tradesmen's guilds and the like. And these were always men of the same socioeconomic background, of the same vocation. They would gather and they would kind of slaughter a bird or a small animal and they would send up burnt offerings and smoke would rise to the heavens and they would call upon the patron gods of whatever their particular vocation was to bless them, you know, in the coming year. Um, and then, you know, they'd sit around and eat a big feast and they'd talk about the price of silver or purple cloth or whatever the case may be. It was like a businessman's right. kind of gathering. And so when you encountered one of these in a courtyard, in a kind of a, a housing um, a, a precinct or in a, in a marketplace or even, you know, side streets or back alleys, sometimes they was, these were set up in, um, if you turned the corner and you encountered one there set up in the, in the street, you just think, oh, that's right, that's that's so-and-so's guild meeting. It's got nothing to do with me. I'm a woman, I'm a slave, I'm a, I'm a foreigner, I'm poor, I'm whatever the case may be, and you would just walk around it on your way to wherever you were going and you would pay it no mind. You had no mm -hmm. business there and they had no interest in you, but you couldn't help but see it. 
So when the early Christians start meeting, what do they do? They do exactly the same thing. They put up big tables in courtyards and and, uh, back alleys and side streets and things like that, and they gather around it. And they also have a ritual as well. It involves bread and with wine, and there's no animals slaughtered, and there's no, no... smoke going up because they say, you know, their God is actually with them at this table. So when you round the corner and you encounter that, your first Mm. thought might be, oh, it's a guild meeting. That's not for me. But that's not for me. And it's sort of my business. I just keep, keep going. But you take a second glance at it and it was unlike anything you'd ever seen before because there were men and women at the table side by side, not women serving men, but men and women as equals around the table. And then if you looked really closely and you might have known some of these people, you would realize that some were enslaved people, some were free people, some were wealthy people, some were poor people, uh, some were foreigners, some were citizens, some were Jews, some were Gentiles. And you would look at this thing. Now, you know, these days it's not that unusual for, for, for us to encounter a kind of a multi-ethnic kind of gathering. But for them, it was just a double take. It was just like, you know, who the heck are you people? Like, what is happening here? This is not a guild meeting. And as you tried to pass it, they would do something no guild meeting would do. They would say, friend, you know, have you eaten tonight? Like, uh, you know, have you prepared your meal? Because we have more than enough. Come eat our meat, eat our bread, drink our wine. And then they would explain to you, you know, we don't send our offerings and our prayers up because Christ is with us at this table. And then they do this thing with bread and with wine and they encounter the, the presence of God and someone brings a song and somebody brings a word of prophecy and you're surrounded by this kind of multi-ethnic egalitarian community mm-hmm. where all are contributing to this experience of God's presence right there in this back alley or this courtyard and the like. And it was mind-blowing. And so then you get all of Paul's advice for how the Corinthians, for example, should can conduct this gathering because they then say, well, make sure that if someone's going to bring a word of of, of, of knowledge or a, a, a speak in tongues, that should be interpreted. Well, why should it be interpreted? Well, because his assumption was you're going to have strangers sitting at your table with you and eating your meat with you. So let them, let them figure out what's going on by explaining it and the like, bring interpretations of those things. He's very conscious that people were observing these gatherings, either because they're at the table or because they're walking by or they live around the place. And so this kind of public slash private gathering around tables, this egalitarian community, multi-ethnic, multi-generational community, it was breathtaking. I think it's Hauwas who says that the early Christians didn't conquer the Roman Empire with swords and spears, but with tables. The Mm. table becomes an essential part of the Christian experience. And the table is, well, what is a table? It's a place where we encounter people. It's where we sit Mm. across we break bread, we make conversation. The table is the great equalizing experience. I often say to my students, if I invited you to my home for a meal to eat with my wife and I, how would you feel? And they all say, oh, honored, you know, so, so, so thankful, grateful. And then I'm like, "Mm, uh, cut the crap. Like, how Mm -hmm. would you actually feel? And they're like, 
really intimidated, like scared, <laughs> wondering if I did something wrong. Like, why is he inviting me? I said, of course, because like I'm old enough to be your father or grandfather and um, you don't feel equal to me. I'm your professor. I get all of that. But what happens when we eat with someone we feel intimidated by, our boss, our professor, or someone who's more rich or more smart or more this or more that than us? What do we often find happening is that in the sharing of food, there's this great equalizing uh, effect that we come to realize people are people and that in the sharing of food, uh, the, the fellowship that happens around a table, something really beautiful occurs just generally. And the Christians take that and they infuse that with the presence of Christ in their midst. And they open that up to all people to enter into this experience of hospitality and grace. Now, that's breathtaking. And often people, when I explain that, will then say to me, yeah, but all of our tables are in our in our dining rooms and they're behind locked doors and no one mm -hmm. can see what we do. And that's part of the challenge for the church today because our convention is not to eat outdoors. I mean, you know, in some warmer settings, people who might live in very hot places like Texas uh, will we'll eat outdoors in the summer and the like, but we're not eating in the side streets or the the courtyards or the kind of public places. So part of our challenge today is how do we uh, fashion these private slash public gatherings where people are able to observe what, what the, the new redeemed society of Jesus followers looks like and to enjoy our hospitality and to eat our, our meat and to drink our wine, whether they believe what we believe or want to believe what we believe, but simply as an act of pure hospitality. That's part of the challenge for the church mm -hmm. today. Yeah, I love what you're talking about, Mike, because what it, it, it occurs to me that here the early church is borrowing a form that was existent yep. in the first century, and they're infusing it, like you said, with new meaning and, uh, and the richness of that and the Christian encounter with each other, but with Christ himself around the table, I think, is a beautiful expression. Now, I know you've been involved in a table ministry of sorts, as I recall. Um, am I recalling properly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was part of a deal. Tell us, tell us a little years. bit about that. Yeah, well, that was that was a bit unusual in the sense that it was an old, beautiful old uh, church building. The congregation had closed down. And a group of us went in to kind of revitalize, well, to plant something different in there. So we kind of turned the place into an art gallery. It was a business that functioned as an art gallery. Um, and there was a coffee shop next door and a, a counseling center and what have you. But then in the kind of sanctuary space, which is, as I said, the art gallery, every Sunday night we would pull out these long, low feasting tables and couches and uh, maybe, you know, I don't know, 100 people or so would gather and we would eat around tables. And the meal was like actually part of the gathering in the midst of which we would take communion. And then there would be a teaching time and a discussion time and time for, for uh, ministry and and, uh, and worship and the like. So, um, yeah, it was an attempt to, I know it was, a, it was a closed building, so not closed, the doors are open, but you know what I mean, right. it was hidden from the street, but, uh, you know, we put all the signs up that we could and invited people to come and, and join us. And, uh, yeah, it was an attempt to 
recover this kind of ancient uh, form of of uh, of life together. Now, dinner churches are quite a movement these days, and particularly in the United States, there's a whole network of dinner churches kind of launching out. Sometimes they're existing churches that decide maybe once a month our gathering will be around tables rather than in pews or straight lines. Um, others are like purely dinner churches. Some meet in homes, some meet in halls, some in churches. Um, it's a, it's. I wouldn't say it's a gigantic movement, but I think right. it's a, it's a, a bubbling movement that is starting to kind of happen uh, across uh, America as people are becoming increasingly disdainful, perhaps even allergic to evangelical style Sunday gatherings and but are still yearning for a sense of community and an encounter with God. And I think that the dinner churches are appealing to 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 that kind of sector of the community. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's great. Well, we know you've just recently released a book called Mission in the Shape of Water. And uh, I'm grateful that you sent me a copy to to look at and I've enjoyed reading it. Tell us a little bit about that. Why, why, why is mission in the shape of water, and uh, what does that tell us about the way in which th- we might think about encountering others? Yeah, well, mission is the shape of water. It simply is that um, you know water has no inherent shape. I have had a uh, scientist explain to me that that a water droplet does have an inherent. Shape, <laughs> That's it. The generally speaking, a body of water does not have a, a, an inherent shape. Right, it's shaped by the the bottle that contains it, or by the the, the size and shape of the Caspian Sea, or uh, or the lake down the road, or what have you. So yeah, we all know water changes its shape depending on the receptacle in which it's placed, and and yet it always remains water. So water is H2O, its inherent properties are always the same, its shape is determined by its context. And uh, for some reason, I just happened across this, this idea, and I teach a, a unit at the, at the seminary where I teach at called um, uh, the History of Christian Mission. And as I was teaching that and thinking about mission being like water, being shaped by its context, I realized, of course, that's the history of the Christian movement. Uh, Mission shouldn't inherently change. It has essential properties, just as water is always H2O. Mission should always be concerned about alerting people to the universal reign of God through Christ, alerting people through both speaking and demonstrating what that reign of God through Christ looks like. That doesn't change. That's non-negotiable. But in different settings, in different eras in history and in different contexts around the world, that gets shaped very differently. There isn't a single like box, this is Christian mission, just deliver that to everywhere in the world at every epoch throughout history and it never changes. It's distinctly different in different settings and under different kind of uh, cultural conditions. And so one of the things I found my students doing that unit would say, oh, no, I came into this class not really that interested in history, but other mm. students said it was a good class, and so I thought I'd do it. And at the end of it, they just uh, often will say to me, I feel incredibly hopeful mm. about the future of the church because, like, when I look at the history of what's happened, not just in the West but through, around the world, what I discover is that like this, the church is incredibly resilient and the kingdom continues to unfurl 
And actually, it's inspired me to think there are multiple ways in which the mission of God can be uh, fulfilled in my context or around the world. And I don't have to be stuck into this little box. I feel, Michael, I don't know, and Andrew, I don't know if you'll agree with me, but I feel like a lot of people are really victimized by the last 50 or 60 years of the history of the church in America. Like, it's like, mm-hmm. well, if we could only get back to, and they mm-hmm. often sort of imagine something in the 1950s or something. I mean, when you ask them, they're like, no, 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 I don't want to go back to the 1950s. But there's this kind of sense like, they don't. They can't look back beyond that. This idea that you know, when when the church was much more muscular and um, much larger and uh, had much more influence in society, oh, you know, that's the way it ought to be. But then, if you say, well, you just push back beyond that even further, and then even further beyond that, what you discover is that the church has taken multiple stances in society, even in the United States, but let alone around the rest of the world, and so. I wrote the book not only, I mean, not just as a history book, but as mm-hmm. uh, an inspiration to people to free their imaginations, to say, look, there are multiple ways that we could be thinking about what it means to, to be missional people in this world, and I need to shake myself out of the limitations I currently have. I I haven't yet read your book. I was lamenting uh, to Michael before we got on um, all of my favorite authors just keep releasing books, which is really hard on me uh, to actually catch up and read all of them. So yours is is next in line. Um, so if I'm stepping on the book, forgive me. And I'm not calling you to be a prognosticator, but you you had mentioned earlier, you're talking about Isaiah and all of the, the prophecies about this Messiah and and what he will be and what his kingdom will look like and what that people who are a part of that kingdom will do. And then Jesus comes and he leaves, but yet we're not there yet, right? We are still in process to bring that kingdom uh, into fruition, to be the people that step into all of these wonderful prophecies about who we will be and what life will be like in his kingdom. And so Mike Frost, the prognosticator, what do you see as you are looking around you right now? What do you see as an area that the church needs to step into in a very big way where we are not seeing the kingdom show up yet? Where is kind of a a next step for us? I don't want to say mission field um, like it's a task, but what's that next area that we really need to lean into? Well, I think that's a good question. I think it's different in different places. Mm. So I think that, say, in Africa, you know, there's this great sense of the joy that comes with the kingdom and of uh, an emphasis on healing and uh, and and um, the, the the kind of the, the power of, of the presence of God. But yet in many settings, you don't see a real um, similar commitment to peacemaking and to justice and to things mm-hmm. like that in the, in that context. In other contexts, you'll encounter like a strong emphasis on um, awareness of, of reconciliation and understanding of the atonement. Um, so there's that, which is part of the kingdom that we have been reconciled to God and we should reconcile to others, but not necessarily that same sense of say joy or that same experience of, of peacemaking or, um, or, or healing uh, the, the power of God. So in different settings, it's different things. 
But I would even roll it back further than that if we're just talking about us in the West and mm-hmm. say that for lots of people, lots of evangelical people, if I can use that term, evangelicals, Pentecostals, Charismatics and the like, there isn't actually a great knowledge about what the kingdom of God is. I don't mean to be patronising mm-hmm. here, but I often put it this way. If I went to your church with a clipboard and I did a survey and I asked people, could you tell me what is the kingdom of God or reign of God or whatever term that particular mm-hmm. tradition might be used to? Can you explain that to me? My guess is that a lot of regular Christians would struggle to know how to answer that question. They may have little bits of that answer, but what is the reign of God? Oh, gosh. Um, and whenever I've put that in settings, uh, you know, pastors' gatherings, and I've said, I think if I went to your church and I said this, a lot of people would, would struggle a little bit to know what categories to use or what language to use, and I get lots of people nodding. But I say, if I went to your church with the same clipboard and I asked, what is the gospel? Can you tell me what the gospel is? Mm-hmm. Most people would actually have the language and the categories for that. Now, whether they get it perfectly right, right they would say something about Jesus died for my sins and that if I repent and accept him as my savior and my king, that I will go to heaven when I die. There'll be something around those lines. The idea of gospel is very familiar to people, and it's usually for them about the atonement. And yet the term gospel, as you guys know, just means good news. And if you follow the the phrase, it's meant to continue Mm -hmm. the good news of Of the the kingdom. kingdom. Right. Gospel is just telling us that the the news about the kingdom is good. So the kingdom, I feel like we've, we've raised several generations of people that aren't very good at talking about what the reign of God is about. And I just mentioned to you before that I believe that my definition of mission is to alert everyone to the universal reign of God through Christ. So if that's the task, if that's the mission of God's people, to let America know, to let the world know our God reigns through Christ and here's what his reign looks like and here's how it's unfurling and let me describe to you what life in that kingdom is like. If that's our mission, and most of the people in our churches actually don't really have language to describe the kingdom, can you see how screwed we are when it comes to mission? Like, mm-hmm. all people are used to be, I was going to tell your friends that they're sinners, but if they repent and come to church and accept Jesus, they get to go to heaven when they die. I don't mean to be too, too right. uh, minimalistic about this, but... That's essentially kind of what people would be confident about saying. Whether they're saying that or not is another question. But that's what most people would have in their minds, I'm meant to go and do. But when I say, well, actually, what you're meant to go and to do and to tell people is that Jesus is the king, that his kingdom has come, and that if you repent and if you bow your knee to him as king and come into his kingdom, a whole new world opens up to you. And you find your, your original purpose in life, that you become a different kind of human in a new kind of society mm-hmm. with a whole new set of values, which are good and beautiful and rich. And here's what they are. And I describe them. Unless people are any good at talking about that, we don't even like throw a six and get on the board and get started. I mean, and for the most people, most part, what we're discovering now is most Christians don't talk to their friends about Jesus very effectively, and they've almost got no idea what the kingdom is. And yet that is the whole message that people were talking about. So, I mean, I often refer to David Gushy and Glenn Stassen's Seven Marks of the Kingdom. I say, well, here's what the kingdom is. You know, Stassi and Gushy and Stassen <laughs> went through all the properties of Isaiah 
And then all the references in the Synoptic Gospels that either use the language of Isaiah or are explicitly about fulfilling the words of Isaiah. And they kind of transpose those together and they say, here's what Isaiah anticipated. Here's what the gospel writers believe Jesus fulfilled. Put those together and you have these seven marks of the kingdom. This is what Jesus talked about. This is what Jesus fulfilled. It's what Israel yearned for. This is what we are now invited to tell people about and to demonstrate to people. And it becomes like, incredibly mind-blowing for lots of Christians who are like, oh, that's what the mission of God's people is. And then when you talk about, like, what are those seven things? They are deliverance or salvation. They are healing. They are an experience of the presence of God. I'm sorry I started counting these because I'm probably going to not remember them all. Uh, they are um, joy. They are uh, reconciliation or or peace. Uh, have I said what have I gotten up to now? I've lost count and, and, and forgotten what they all are. But when you start to talk about these expressions of the kingdom, and then you say, look, can you see how this miracle points to that aspect? Can you see how this story that Jesus tells uh, uh, right. points this aspect of the kingdom? When you start to look at the gospels and realize, ah, oh, all of it is actually about kind of pointing to or elucidating or helping us to see what the kingdom is like, go and, uh, and let people know what that looks like. Um, I would say that the biggest challenge, Andrew, is not like which bits do we now really need to embrace. I think just people need a, a language and a vocabulary to understand the whole thing. And I think that is so freeing. And I think that really frames up for us even how we encounter people. As you even said at the very beginning, there's that difference between just seeing people, right? <laughs> I'm surrounded by people and encountering them. And when we say disciples encounter people, I, I bet there is probably some reticence, uh, hesitation on some people's part saying, I don't, what do I say when I go in and I counter them? Uh, do I, do I, do I give them the four spiritual laws? Do I immediately try to get them, uh, to sign their life over to Jesus to pray that prayer? Um, but when we're talking about what is the kingdom, what does that look like to encounter them and let them know that good news and how that looks in their life and in this world and how all things are being made new through him, that's life. That's life. And that's hopeful. Well, yeah. And if you've only got, if your gospel just is, you're a sinner and you're going to hell, but Jesus died for you. That's all you've got. When you encounter a woman who's been sexually assaulted since she was a child, who has been in a series of, of deeply abusive and violent relationships um, who has suffered from uh, PTSD and depression and maybe found her way into uh, uh, addressing or, or numbing those kinds of feelings with alcohol or with drugs and the like. What am I going to say? I'm going to say the one message I've got for you, broken, browbeaten, abused for as long as you can remember, I'm going to say you're a sinner, you're, you're the problem you know, you have to say this prayer and accept Jesus? Or do I recognize actually in the kind of multifaceted notion of the kingdom, would it not be possible for me to say, well, actually, in the kingdom, there's peace. In the kingdom, there's deliverance and freedom. In the kingdom, there is a possibility for you to discover the purpose God originally intended for you. Like, wouldn't not you turn the facet of this kind of message of the kingdom if you're encountering people, as you just said, Andrew, if you're actually hearing them and understanding their circumstance, would you not present to them the aspect of the kingdom, which is which is like 
uh, water on parched soil. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the same token, mm -hmm. if you're encountering some kind of, you know, jerk businessman who thinks he's the master of his own destiny and is willing to crawl over his grandmother's grave to a, to do a deal or to, to, to win at life, you know, I, I think good news to that person is, dude, you need to be broken. Like, you right. need to... Hint. Like you need to. You let, aren't the king. Uh, yeah, and and in that respect, yeah, sure. Sometimes the message is calm down, like humble yourself. Other times it's like to elevate that those who've been broken. And you see this really beautifully in the Gospels, where Jesus is 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 approached by a man named Jairus, a, a, a proud man, a leader of the synagogue, a respected religious leader. He has to humble himself, actually embarrass himself by going out into the street and begging Jesus to come and heal his dying daughter. I, I even suspect Jairus is probably of the class that would have been giving messages in the synagogue about how you should steer clear of this Jesus. He's just a snake oil salesman, you know, from the north. But now publicly he has to humiliate himself, go out into the street and beg Jesus to come and heal him. And as they're on their way, I know you guys know this story, but mm -hmm. a woman steals a miracle from him. Like she mm -hmm. reaches out middle of the crowd, touches the hem of his garment. She's under a misapprehension that, it, that holy men have power in their clothing, which was which was an idea that the Pharisees actually used to say mm -hmm. was not mm -hmm. true, but used to promulgate by having big, long tassels on their clothing and the like. She's believed it. It's not true. It's a lie. She touches the hem of Jesus' garment. She's stealing a miracle under a misapprehension. And guess what? The grace of God heals. is to her. She's healed. A woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, no man would have put up with that. She would be she would be uh, husbandless. She's we're told she spent all of her money on, on, on doctors. She's poor, she's broke, she smells, she's filthy, she's dying, or if not dying, very unwell. She reaches out and touches Jesus. And then that's the healing. That's done. Boom. That's all we need to know. But no, Jesus stops in the middle of this assembly of men and insists that she show herself. Who healed? Who touched me? She's forced into the assembly of men where Jesus can then say to her, it was your faith mm -hmm. that made you well. And what In this story, you have got Jairus humbling himself being brought down, as it were, to encounter Jesus. But the, the bleeding woman is elevated. She's lifted up as a hero of the faith. Jesus is saying to all the men there, you know what faith looks like? This, this is what it looks like. Um, now, that's a, just a beautiful juxtaposition of these two journeys mm -hmm. to Jesus. Like the gospel does tell proud people to bend their knee, but the gospel also tells broken people that you can be elevated and uh, and seen and observed and healed. Um, that's a magnificent trajectory, just the way these two kind of meet Jesus in the middle, um, beautifully observed in Luke's gospel. Mm. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Uh, I love Sorry. it. And I was holding back tears just at the beauty of Jesus, not just performing a miracle, but it's somebody so desperate, so desperate to be made whole they'll do anything. And she says that I've tried everything. This is my last resort. <laughs> I'm going to Jesus. Um, and yet with all the, the misunderstanding and misappropriation, um, Jesus says, I'll heal. 
uh, it's beautiful. It's yeah, beautiful. Although Jesus seems a bit, um, you know, none the wiser. It's kind of like, whoa. Uh-huh. Just Hang on a second. That must be real faith. Like you must really believe yeah. because like just something, I felt something come out of me. Like uh, who can, I can't understand the mystery of all of that, but uh, or whether Jesus is foxing or whether Jesus, <laughs> knew what Jesus knew, I don't know. But you're right. I mean, it's just pure unadulterated grace. And for many of us, we've had experiences of churches where you only get grace if you believe the right things or if you say the right things or if you do the right things, if you if you attain a certain level of of knowledge or, or right behavior, right behavior and right belief, like you're you're graced in that setting. And here is this woman who gets it all wrong and is graced by Jesus' presence. And so yeah, this is what the kingdom looks like. It looks like healing. I mean, to your question before, uh, you know, what what aspects do we need to embrace? I think more healings. Come on. I mean, that's what the kingdom of God promises. People, broken people will get healed um, uh, in the same way that, you know, we need to be fashioning reconciliation. I mean, in your country, I think more so than mine, but in mine as well. I mean, the, the polarization of, of our society, this kind of movement to the far left and the far right, this sense in which, you know, there's, there's no place for reconciliation or yeah, for there is no middle. compromise or relationship. It's, um, it's deeply, deeply concerning. And it is the antithesis of what it means to encounter people, which is what we're talking about. It's the antithesis of the kingdom. The kingdom was about reconciling people. I mean, you know, Paul says it on a couple of occasions, here in this table, at this gathering, in this community of faith, no slave, no free, no male, no female, no Jew, no Gentile. even says like um, no Scythian or barbarian. It's like, you know, Whatever, whatever label puts you on the outer or on the inner, they don't matter anymore. Like this whole new society has been formed. And I would think that that would be one of the biggest challenges in both of our countries for the church to be able to demonstrate what that level of reconciliation and relationship looks like. And frankly, I think both of our churches in both of our countries are failing at it. So we've got liberal churches and we've got fundamentalist churches and we've got black churches, we've got Korean churches, we've got young churches and older churches. Like we, We've all been bifurcated, demarcated into our kind of various ethnic or generational kind of categories as well as into our theological categories. And I don't think America, when they're trying to figure out how do we get out of this polarised impulse that that has taken grip in our society they don't look to the church and think oh those guys are going to work out yeah let's mm-hmm. let's figure out what they do because the church it seems has just gone along as if like a, a bull led by the nose uh and and simply is a a reflection of the society at large we need to be the people that christ is calling us to be and then while being the people seek to encounter people. That is the characteristic that we've been talking about today. The disciples encounter people. Mike, thank you so very much for sharing these stories. And um, I know that we are, you know, seconds from the end of this podcast. I can't wait for others to hear this because it is so encouraging. And I think it gives us a a confident and hopeful way forward. Um, Thank you so much for being our guest. Uh, if if others have been as encouraged as I have been, where can they keep up with you and the things that you are doing aside from 
hitting pause on this podcast and going to purchase Mission is the Shape of Water. But beyond that, how can they keep up with what you're doing? Uh, well, I'm on social media. I've got a website, mikefrost.net. Um, yeah, that, that, just Google it. You'll find it. Uh, we love Google because it points us in all the right directions. Thank you, Mike, for being with us today. Truly, it was a joy. And thank you, listener, for joining us, too, in this Make Disciples podcast series. If this was your first co- podcast in the series or you're interested in finding out more about a physiology, um, go on uh, to your podcast feed, check out our catalog, or go online and visit us at physiology.com. Uh, we invite you to do that. Lastly, please go check out all the resources that we have for you at masterclasses.ephesiology.com. It's going to enrich you, I promise. So for Michael, Mike, and myself, thanks for doing theology and community with us today on the Ephesiology Podcast.